0: alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am so honored to have my guest today. Dr. Otto Schrammer is a senior lecturer in the MIT Management Sloan School and co-founder of the Presencing Institute. He chairs the MIT Ideas Program for Cross-Sector Innovation and introduced the concept of presencing, learning from the emerging future. In his best-selling books, Theory U and Presence, the latter co-authored with Peter Senge, who will be on next week, he's the author of Leading from the Emerging Future, which outlines eight acupuncture points for transforming capitalism. And his most recent book, the Essentials of Theory U, which we're going to be discussing today, outlines the core principles and applications of awareness-based system change. Otto, welcome to conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. I've been so looking forward to this, and uh, I just am a big admirer of your work. And let's just start out talking about what is Theory U, and why do you think it's so important in this time of massive social, environmental Political and spiritual disruption and divisiveness. So, theory you, uh, you know, a, another
1: term for, for using for that uh, belongs into the more recent evolution of systems thinking and systems change. And it, it, it belongs into the uh, a group of awareness based systems change. So, the uh, two or three lines how to summarize this. So, all systems change really starts with. You know the the old uh, founding principle uh, articulated by Kurt Lewin, who said, said famously that you cannot understand a system unless you change it. So that's really the foundation of Peter Peter's work of my work. That's why why I came to MIT to to, to learn how to how to do that. And back then, joining Peter's group. So that's principle one. Principle two is. You cannot change a system unless you transform consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that sentence basically is, uh, you know, uh, boils down theory U into one sentence, right? Mm-hmm. It also boils down 25 years of my experience into one sentence, and many of the changed, uh, you know, stories that I studied uh, uh, into that one line. And what it basically says is this. If you want to really effect profound change, just ch- changing the structure of things, kind of how things are organized, is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because unless you transform the mindset, unless you transform how we pay attention, how we connect with each other, right? Unless you transform consciousness, you're not really kind of uh, uh, cutting to the, to the deeper level. So, if that's number two, right, um, you, you cannot change a system unless you transform consciousness, then uh, if we just assume for a moment that that was true, then the real question, of course, is how? How, how do you do that? And that's really so the, the main focus of, of the interview. The sentence that is summarizing uh, that line of work is this You cannot transform consciousness unless you make a system sense and see itself yes so in traditional systems thinking you would have said you cannot transform blah 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 unless you make a system see itself right so that's like traditional systems thinking you hold up the mirror that's already good i mean that's already like uh but what's the big problem in the world today the big problem in the world is that The knowing-doing gap, right? We know everything that needed to happen around climate change, right? Project drawdown. We know the 100 solutions. You know, for 80 of them, the technologies are there. Are we implementing them? No. So there is kind of this knowing-doing gap. And so it's a disconnect between, you could say, on a collective level, our head, what we think, and our hand, what we do. And what I believe is, from a systems point of view, you cannot bridge the disconnect between head and hand without activating the intelligence of the heart. Mm-hmm. So that's the sensing part, right? How do you activate the, the intelligence of the heart by activating the intelligence of our senses? So that's why in all the methods and tools that we developed, So I believe one of the biggest leverage points today is developing these methods and tools that on a systems level, allow us to make systems sense and see themselves because only then we'll see a shift of consciousness not only on the level of individuals but on the level of the collective and that's really what
0: theory is about what awareness-based systems change is about so let's talk a little bit about the how starting at the individual into the larger organizational and societal level When I think of trying to see my inner interiority, I mean, I'm a longtime meditator and and I'm used to seeing that. But most people, it's like trying to see your own face or trying to change your mind with your mind. You're in that kind of locked in place of seeing the world as a reflection of your past experiences. The same goes for organizations and culture and the different ways that we look to try to move things is, well, one way is make America great again. Someone said that recently. Going to the past, right? Going to the past or just doing nothing or running really fast to try every new innovation and thing we can, but not going to that self-reflective on both an individual, organizational, societal level, including seeing ourselves as organization and as society, how do we flip that switch to be able to do what you're saying, to see that inner interiority? I I love that term, kind of, to to see the the interiority,
1: because I think it points at a really important leverage point. And so I would say what you just described, which can be also uh, reframed as, okay, what's happening today? What's happening is that we, we all, right, whether on a level of the individual, group, or whole system, we are confronted with a new dimension of disruption, right? Mm-hmm. We see, we are, we, we are confronted with disruption on all levels of scale right now. So what you described, I would say, is, uh, can be summarized as uh, two ways of responding to that, right? So one is, same old, right? You, you basically do the same thing. You, you run faster or not, but it's basically the same program, right? So that's, that's, that, that's one way of, I would say that's kind of the reactive mode. Um, then there's another one that you quoted as make dot 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 great again, right? So that's a way where you turn backwards, you respond to a situation by turning backwards because make something great again, the most important word is the last one, again. So you orient yourself in the past in order to bring something back that no longer is. And the third option, I believe, has to do with what you, you, know, uh, what you refer to with the interiority. It has to do with leaning into something we don't know leaning into the emerging future. And that requires us to lean into the current moment in a different way. So this leaning into the emerging future requires us to open our mind, to deal with the, you know, to be comfortable with not knowing, to open our heart, to be comfortable with, you know, uh, emotionally um, edgy situations where we need to, uh, where we need to tune into other people's perspective that may be very unfamiliar to us. So leaning into the emerging future requires us to access our open mind, our open heart, and our open will. What I mean with open mind is the capacity to access our curiosity. What I mean with open heart is the capacity to access our empathy, to look at a situation through other people's point of view, to move, outside of my own filter bubble. And what I mean with uh, open will is the capacity of letting go and letting come. So letting go of the old and letting come of the new. So that's the third way of responding to disruption. And I believe each of us in every single moment that we live, but in particular in moment where we are confronted with disruption, we are the most profound choice in life that we do is our inner attitude. Whether we respond with the first response, same old, same old, just faster. Whether we respond with the second one where we turn away from the situation. We turn backwards in order to make something uh, that no longer is great again. Or whether we lean forward which in order to do that, requires us to really cultivate these three instruments, kind of the, op- the open mind, mm-hmm. the open heart, and the capacity to let go and let come. So that's, I think, the, the most important choice uh, uh, we all do. And basically what the you process is, it's a set of methods and tools that helps you to progress on that journey if, if but only if, your choice is your intention is
0: to operate on the third response. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that is really important, similar to what I've been teaching for years, but I love the four levels of listening, which of course do apply to many other things. Can you talk a little bit about that in relationship to this? Because we have to progress in those fields of listening in order to do what you're talking about.
1: The the four uh, levels of listening, and and, um, you're right. I mean, so, Listening and leading through listening, listening is probably in all stuff uh, connected to change and to leadership, the most important aspect and characteristic. And if you look around and look at you know, leadership failures, of which we see many, at the root of all these leadership failures tends to be a disconnect of leaders to reality, which means a lack of listening right? So, so that's why I believe listening really is not only at the foundation of all great leadership. Listening is at the uh, foundation of any kind of mastery. So in any kind of discipline, you cannot develop mastery without being a good listener. So it's foundational because you cannot develop mastery if you're disconnecting with reality, if you're disconnecting with whatever it is, you're shaping into something. So in that regard, um, Uh, The the four levels of listening are just like an um, explication of the distinctions I I just introduced. Mm -hmm. So listening, one, which is that just projecting or downloading old habits uh, of um, thought or old kind of habits of, uh, you know, old structures of experience, patterns of the past. That's just the absence of of listening. And that's, of course, uh, you know, uh, in part of what we do in habitualized way of interacting with one another. So that's level one. Level two is factual listening, which means to really activating this part of our intelligence. Kind of you look at at a situation, I'm noticing what you are saying. I'm not just projecting what I would like you or what, what, what I am. Expected you to hear, but I'm 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 noticing what is it actually kind of that 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 you are saying that you are asking of me. Listening three is something very different because it's no longer operating from here and looking at a situation, but instead it's like shifting the place from where my listening is happening, from you know looking at you from outside towards. Tuning into your your story and uh, connecting with the inner place that you are operating from. So it's something we call empathic listening. And the only way of uh, to do that as as humans is actually by you know activating this level of our intelligence and uh, activating the open heart. We do that naturally with our friends. So for example, uh, when we had the little, so we had like two minutes of pre-conversation b- b- before we started here and we were chatting a little bit, hey, what 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 was it that got you into all this, right? So so we were chatting a little bit. So that so that beginning conversation allowed me to maybe look at this conversation really also from your angle, kind of where you are coming from. And so that's, so again, so it's something we, we naturally do with uh, friends but uh, particularly in important stakeholder situation, particularly if you know, it, it really matters, and it may be quite difficult because you and I may have like different interests. Maybe we represent different organizations. Then of course is when it, when it really matters from a you know, systems point of view. And then the third, so that's like empathic listening. And I remember I was uh, interviewing Eleanor Roche from Berkeley, UC Berkeley, kind of uh, the department of psychology. So she's an eminent psychologist and she used a wonderful language for that. She, this shift of moving out of my own mental structure where I'm looking at stuff from outside towards connecting with your deeper source of listening. She referred to this shift in terms of listening begins to happen from the field. I love that language, right? Because I think it's, if you really um, review your actual experience, when you, so that's stuff we can do, right? As human beings, when we activate that level of listening, we notice that, so I'm no longer, you know, for a moment, you know, I let go of my own agenda, right? I, I take a deep dive into someone else's experience. It's actually something we can do, and this term listening begins to happen from the field or begins to happen from the place from where another person is speaking from, I think it pretty precisely tracks our real experience. And it always comes with forgetting our own agenda, at least for a little moment, right, when, when that happens. So it's, so that's what we do as humans. We can take a deep dive into another person's uh, experience. Even though some people may suggest, oh, it's all just mental projection. It's not really true. I think if, if you really activate that level, it is actually true right? kind of, and, and we can have that deeper empathic connection with one another. So that's level three, right? Empathic listening. The, so far, I haven't really said anything new. I think these distinctions have been described quite often and you know, by all deep uh, thinkers um, of you know, conversation and dialogue and listening and also in psychology. But what I would say uh, might be in part slightly new is the fourth level, something that I call generative listening, in which has to do, so I think that the, the everyday term for that would be deep listening, right? Even though deep listening, when I, uh, when that term is used, it's usually used for both level three and level four. So what I mean with generative listening is Say, you have a great coach and I have a really different situation. So when the great coach is listening to me, the great coach coach is not just empathizing with me, right? With all my struggles and my my, my letting go. No, a great coach is listening to, to my struggles, to my story of the moment from a different angle. She is paying attention. She is listening from the place, who I could be tomorrow. So she is kind of attending to my current situation from a viewpoint that's already paying attention to who I could be tomorrow, my highest future potential. And if you have someone listening to you who sees you not only in terms of who you are today, who you have become through your journey of the past, but who you might be, who you could be tomorrow, That's what truly great educators do. That's what truly great coaches do. That's what truly great leaders do. That's what Nelson Mandela did like on a country level. But but what we all are invited to do in uh, our own context of leadership and change. And of course, we all know where is it most difficult in our very most personal relationships, right, with our partners. Why? because we know these people so well. There's so much, right, so that, that we know. But level four listening means, even though you may have known your partner for many years or even many decades, right, so that you find the place where you look at your partner as if she or he was a stranger, right? So, so you pay attention to the unknown. You pay attention to that part in her, in him, that isn't known, that's still unfolding, that could manifest tomorrow. So that's level four listening, listening from the highest future potential. And that's really what matters most when you deal with disruption in your own context. Because if you deal with disruption, what you want to do is to not hold on to the past, to not be enslaved to your experiences and programs and habits of the past. But to open up not only mentally and not only emotionally, but also open up you know with your whole existence in order to let go and let come, mm-hmm. and that's I think the highest art of of deep listening, and that's a threshold we as human beings face in many ways throughout this century so it's uh, it, it's really kind of the matter developmental challenge that we face, and that's why. Building these skills individually
0: and collectively is really foundational for for everything else, I believe. I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Dr. Otto Schwamer. He's a senior lecturer in the MIT Management Sloan School. You know, the models I, I use in my own work are the shift from the head, which I present as the Newtonian, Cartesian mechanistic perspective of objects in a world of objects, to the heart-based quantum or mystical perspective of everything's connected. and But those two different frames are two completely different languages and we're embedded in the language, the mechanistic language. So even when we're trying to actually be connected in the way you're saying, there's a structure which in many ways, I think, limits our ability to do that. So. That's one aspect I'd love to talk about. What you say also connects
1: back to the uh, early part of our conversation where you talked about the interiority. So a different way of, so you said Newtonian. So uh, I would say like a a different uh, way of, uh, and, and you explain it with, well, you're just seeing stuff from here, from outside, right? Um, but for example when you when you look at systems thinking right, most systems thinking models are really a third person perspective, so so they are looking at stuff from outside so uh, I have come across and it 's a term I already used many years ago, but i particularly here in America, the moment I used it, I saw you know the blank stairs right I mean you have this sinking feeling that now i 'm losing my audience, so that prompted me to actually not use that. But, so as you grow older, kind of you, I guess uh, you grow less sensitive. So I'm now returning to that. I also feel now is a different moment. And maybe also I learned a a thing or two to articulate it slightly less off-putting. But the term I'm talking about is social fields. And the way I would define social fields is something very simple. It's a social system seen from within. So again, a social field is a social system seen from within. Mm -hmm. So while a social system only has the outside view, third person view, a social field has both, the outside view, it's a social system, but it also is inquiring into the interiority of that system. So that means into the first person and second person perspective, how to inquire that system. And that's really what, uh, what what matters today. So you started with kind of the, the Newtonian and then um, the, the, the quantum uh, perspective. I would say, if you really go back and for example, uh, what was very instructive to me to study the work of Henry Bortoft, um, and what you can see there is that In fact, there is, uh, of course, Newtonian science kind of is, is, is very limited, but it's actually not true that everything science is only kind of misunderstanding reality from outside. There is actually the possibility for a different science that takes into account not only the third person perspective, but also the first and second person perspective. And that in the history of science has been really uh, pioneered by a guy who is known uh, for something very different. So he, he was a poet. It's kind of the uh, uh, Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe in, in Germany, kind of in the um, 18th century Germany. You know, develop that basically as an alternative model to the Newtonian, uh, you know, uh, uh, approach to science. Yes, it didn't win out, obviously, because no one knows it today, right? So everyone knows the other model. But I would say it's uh, so. It's not. Um, it's not a like a law, a natural law that science can be only done done one way. In fact, kind of there are different approaches to science that would bring in more the first and second person perspective, which is my own experience and also the experience we have in deep listening, right? You and I may have, the listeners of this conversation may have as another data point that feeds into, of course, also considering what we can measure, what we can, you know, tape with, you know, the third person perspective, everything we can tape with a video recording machine, for example. And what prompted me really to be more uh, intentional around that, and what prompted me also, that was one of the big, um, you know, when you ask, uh, okay, Theory U, so what are really the two points of origin, right, or, or the three points? So I, I will give you three points, kind of where the whole approach of Theory U is really already there in a nutshell, right? The first one was I talked to a practitioner, right, a, a former CEO. He, in fact, I mean, you all um, talk with Peter Senge next week. He was one of the main collaborators of Peter Senge. So I, uh, when I arrived here, I started working with him a little bit, and I, I interviewed people who had led profound transformation stories. So I asked them so what they learned, and here's what he said. So he summarized his many years of, C, of, of leading transformational change with this sentence. The success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. Mm-hmm. So what he basically said is the success of what I do as a change maker does not only depend on what I do and how I do it, but it's on the source, it depends on the source, on the inner place from that I operate. So that's kind of seed one, right? Seed two now moved from the East Coast to Silicon Valley. Uh, And so it's a conversation with uh, Brian Arthur, uh, back then the head of the economic group of the Santa Fe Institute, And he basically um, described two types of cognition, right? Basically downloading, old style, right? Using old frameworks and, you know, connecting with something that's emerging. So that the profound innovation. And he described this kind of second type as a process of moving through observe, 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 right? Opening up. Connect to the deeper sources of knowing, connecting with stillness, number two. And then number three, act in an instant, kind of rapid cycle prototyping. And that, you know, this, so I drew, when I heard that, I drew, I summarized that movement by putting it, plotting it on a U. right? Going down, right? Observe, observe, observe. Going down to a deeper source of knowing. And then when something begins to emerge, you bring it back up. So, so I plotted that on a U, and that's why it's called Theory U. So that's like the second seed, right? But here's the third seed: move east to Paris, uh, meeting with Francesco Varela, the late um, cognition scientist and co-founder of the Mind and Life Institute with uh, the Dalai Lama. And um, so he said, so as a cognition uh, scientist, he claimed that there is a blind spot in Western science. And I asked him, what's the blind spot? And, and he responded, the blind spot is that we do not have a method how to access experience. Everyone knows, everyone thinks, uh, you know, um, the problem is what we can measure in the brain. But the problem is not that we don't know what's going on in the brain. The problem is that we don't know how experience is coming into being, how we access as human beings, our own experience. So that was that interview. So I typed it up, you know, I shared it with people and many practitioners in organizational change uh, really resonated with that line of his. So four years later, uh, shortly before he passed away uh, way too early, I returned to him to Paris and said, "Look, you know this line really resonated with many. Have you done any more work on that?" And he said, "Well, that's the main topic I have been uh, focusing on for the past four years, and here's uh, what I came up with. And then he described how he synthesized three approaches that he found that actually do address this blind spot. And that's psychological introspection. It's phenomenology and it's Eastern meditation. Mm -hmm. And he synthesized these three approaches into three what he called gestures of becoming aware, which he named suspension, redirection, letting go. So suspension means suspending old habits of thought. That's the whole open mind issue, right? Mm-hmm. And redirection is really kind of uh, moving. So that's how I interpret it, uh, you know, moving really from I look at a problem from this angle towards connecting with how other people look at a problem, kind of the open heart issue. And then the third one he called letting go and letting come. So basically, in, when I heard him saying that, I knew I had seen this, what he described. Suspension, redirection, letting go already many times. Where in team developments, if you take a team, right, in any kind of workshop, through any kind of developmental journey, what is it you are being paid for as a facilitator to do that, right? To help people to suspend the habits of the projections, right? The habitual way of judging stuff, you know, to see with fresh eyes. You help people to. Um, Look at the issue, not just from your own silo, but from the other guys' uh, points of view. And then when we are lucky, right? In any kind of team process, when we are lucky, we let go of the past for a little moment, right? And then something new begins to show up, right? We move into a collective flow, maybe, when we are lucky. So I, I knew I had seen what he described many times, but not on how people meditate, that was his angle, but more on what happens you know, in a team process, right? So that was really the third seed that birth theory U because I realized what he was describing for the individual, I had seen on an individual, it's the same turning points and when you think about how organizations develop and when you think about how larger systems develop, the, the evolution of coordination mechanisms, it's the same thing. I cannot elaborate. That's kind of in the book that you showed up. What I'm describing there, in more detail, but the gist of it is that I think so. It's not like, and you of course you didn't say it that way, kind of. So this is the head is just Newtonian, and then you know something else. So I would agree with you. So that this new science that brings in first and second person perspective into science can only do so if the intelligence that you work with is of course grounded in their mind, right? But also extended to the intelligence of the heart. Yeah. So, so that's, and then that's what you propose. And, and that's what, what I uh, you know, profoundly would, would agree with. And I would say in, in the history of science, like for example, in the Goethean style, style phenomenology, As Henry Bortoff described in his um, um, wonderful books, there are already early attempts to go into that direction. But it's only now, I think, that we have all the tools together that allow us to put that on the larger scale. Plus, today, we deal with challenges that we can no longer respond to with the first two responses, which is like turning backwards or doing more of the same. In order to lean into the future, we actually need to cultivate these interior conditions. And that means also we need to extend our way of science
0: making and technology making in a new way. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. You brought up something that I find really important in being able to suspend your point of view and let go and connect and look. And that is something that I see happening often with people who do mindfulness practices, meditation or contemplation. And that is there's a point where you have all these thoughts arising and all these things coming up, and you realize, well, these are coming up, but who's observing the things that are coming up? And a certain split from a witness to what's arising, happens. And a whole new world, I think, comes out of that. So to step into that, even the ability to lean into the future, the emergent future, and be informed by it in that time issue has to come with some kind of separation from our identity and story and egoic, you know, unfolding narrative. To this place of actually being able to recognize, there's something else that's observing. Is that your experience, or what yeah. your thoughts about that? No, no, that that's a very, um, I think, pointed way of of putting it.
1: So that uh, definitely resonates with me, and just kind of to to provide two more data points that that underline the same point. So i would say in general what we have seen in the past decade has been quite wonderful which is kind of the rise of mindfulness right of uh, and mindfulness practices as something that started very very marginal kind of even 10 15 years ago towards something that's almost mainstream today at the same time so that's uh, something profoundly positive it's also like a symptom of a much larger shift or opening of awareness i should say maybe it's not yet a shift but it's an opening of a larger space that being said so for example now Goldman Sachs for example introducing their own mindfulness, their own mindfulness program so why should I be excited about that right? so now the same harmful business practices right that destroy more of the nature uh, kind of uh, increase the level of inequality in society are done with even more precision so what's the good story about that? And so data point one. Data point two, when you look into the whole uh, ecosystem of spiritual communities, right? Anyone who has done that, of course, knows that developing yourself individually does not translate into a higher level of social skills, right? Or of leadership skills, right? So. So, or even of moral competence, right? In some cases. So we all are painfully aware kind of, of of these things as well, right? And it it happens, uh, you know, to to many, um, you know, not only religious, you know, but also uh, other spiritual communities. So I think that that's another data point that is underlining the point you make. And so I would say, what I would, when I now uh, you know go into my own experience and you know what is the what I have seen and you know what what uh, maybe more often more regularly and what I where I believe yes this is maybe something that's important for us to pay more attention to then I would name this the power of collective seeing. Mm-hmm. So that you're exactly right. The question is, who is doing the witnessing, right? So when, when, when we engage this. And what, and what I have been learning is, if the witnessing is being done by a community, so if you move from, say, as a society, from individual sense-making, of course we need to do that. Let, let's, put, let's use a different term. From siloed types of sense-making, where each sector and each group is kind of going through their own sense-making process. So something that's more co-sensing-based, where multiple stakeholder comes together and where, as a community, you begin to see the patterns through the eyes of all the different participants in that community that may hold different political views, different institutional interests, and so forth. If you can hold the space for that, it's very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. So to me, the, 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 the source of collective transformation starts with the first part of the you process, which is kind of the um, uh, seeing together, which is kind of moving from individual to collective seeing, something I call co-sensing. And when you, you know, move into deeper sense-making processes together, right, as a community, as a system of different stakeholders, it's a very powerful and subtle shift that happens and that opens up uh, potential for creativity, not only individually but also collectively. So that's just something I have seen time and again, and, and I, I'm I'm confident that this is not just a one-off. And yet, I know that our society is organized in a way that this is usually not happening. It's it's even against antitrust laws to do this on an industry level, right? And I'm not just talking about bringing all the suppliers uh, in a monopoly or, or a, a situation of very few players together. I'm really talking about all the players, including kind of the, the user. And, and Stakeholders, all the stakeholders. Customer uh, communities and the other stakeholders relevant. So that's, I think, where as a uh, society today, we lack enabling infrastructures. And that if these in- infrastructures are in place and if we have the right methods and tools which is not just individual, but also collective sense-making, then uh, I think we, there's a lot we can, we can accomplish uh, uh, in, a, in a short amount of time. And that's why I believe in general today we live in a moment where in the last decade or two we have seen the power of mindfulness if applied onto the cultivation of the individual, But what needs to happen going forward is to apply the power of mindfulness
0: onto the transformation of the collective. Yes, uh, the big issue. I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Dr. Otto Schramer. He's a senior lecturer in the MIT Management Sloan School. And we're talking about his latest book, The Essentials of Theory U, Core Principles and Applications. Otto, we could spend days with this conversation. I'm just feeling like we're just getting into it. But I want to call attention to a series of articles that you just wrote on your site. For those of you listening, it's Otto Uh That's S-C-H-A-R-M-E-R. And you spoke to the issue of climate change, which has always been a major focus, primary focus in many ways, uh, both as a movement, but also as... Uh, the greatest threat probably to humanity that we have right now, and that's climate change. And how there's a shift to reverse global warming. In order to do that, we need to do the economic, the democratic, the social, the learning structures to make this massive global shift. And I'd like to talk about that in the sense of the three blind spots uh, that you bring up, being a regenerative farmer supporter, uh, soil democracy and consciousness and how they come together in relationship to climate change and uh, in relationship to how, theory, you can support this movement and shift. Sure. So let me um, let me try to put that into two minutes
1: or three um, so that, <laughs> that, that, that we have left, uh, but the, 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 the more detailed version will be uh, for those of the listeners who, who want to uh, read it up in more detail and discuss it uh, will be on that um, site, which is just kind of um, my, my own homepage. Um, so I would say this we all know on, on, on climate change, we all know one part of the story, even though it's not happening, right? But it's starting to happen. And that is, we need to keep the fossil fuel in the ground, right? That's very simple. So that's kind of the whole energy issue. Right. We need to move from fossil fuel based forms of energy generation to uh, regenerative and it's going to happen. It's just a question of time. I mean, it's, it's happening with or without you know, external catastrophes and unnecessary suffer- suffering uh, on a um, large, if not epic scale. So that's the first part. It's not happening fast enough, but we at least know what the issue is, right? The issue is is keep the fossil fuel in the ground. But there's another dimension that's almost equally important that almost no one knows about. And uh, that's like an equally large contributor to current CO2 emissions, which is around, like the energy sector, which is around 30%. And that is the, food, farm and food system, some studies even claim, or, you know, one, I have really only seen one, that it's around 50%, but most studies, uh, you know, account uh, for the farm and food system when you include everything around 30%. So it's massive. It's the same level than the the regenerative energy issue uh, and fossil fuel issue has. In essence, it deals uh, with our soil. But here comes what makes it different and what makes it so important for the years to come if you switch. So basically, um, you know, the, um, a lot of the um, eco-diversity and the e- environmental issues come from industrial farming. Right. So monoculture, you know, and all the basically erosion of soil, uh, then the pollution of groundwater and so on and so forth the health issues kind of that that are uh, resulting from that so if you switch from industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture according to a bunch of recent experiments you would not only not have these negative these emissions right the co2 emissions in the amount of 30% per- per- but you could even bio sequester somewhere between 50 and hundred percent of the global total CO2 emissions. And that's just a completely shocking number, right? Even if that was, if you know that, you know, one study claims like it's more than a hundred percent, even if it's only half of that, and even if that only w- were applicable for let's say a decade or a few years, you know, the transition years, it's still like such a profound impact that it's totally ununderstandable why we are not talking more about that issue. Because just like uh, in, the, in the fossil fuel industry, you have the Koch brothers, you have like vested interests kind of that are you know, basically building up and funding, effectively funding the climate denial industry. Why is it we are not you know, having the, uh, the, the same conversation, which is the transition conversation? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the uh, uh, agricultural side so that's basically the space I'm exploring a little bit there and the, the proposition is to, to really move the dial on climate change basically to reverse global warming we not only need uh, to move from fossil fuel based forms of energy to regenerative but also in the ag sector we, we need to move from industrial agriculture to a regenerative model of agriculture. And then I give an example in the part two of this thing where that actually is beginning to happen, right? Because we all know where it's not coming from, right? It's not coming from the organized interest groups. It's not coming from the politicians that are paid by these groups whose income and whose um, uh, next cycle election campaign is depending on funds from these groups. Mm the the story there where you know within nine months, uh, uh, the biggest agricultural state in Germany turned around is the story of direct democracy. So I share that in the second part of the blog, and all the there's really a revolution going on, a huge awakening, in uh, so six different European countries to introduce what's called citizen assemblies. Right, so there are like two main mechanisms of citizen-driven democracy citizen assemblies, or sometimes in the U.S. also called citizen councils, and uh, referendum. And so I give a few examples there that there's really something happening, because if you look from the outside and you ask yourself, okay, if you put in front of people, if you allow people to participate in public decision making, who wants to poison themselves, degrade the topsoil, pollute the w- groundwater, and also uh, you know, diminish and compromise on your children's uh, future, right? No one. No one wants to do that. Yet, that's exactly what we are funding with $1 trillion a year subsidies to the conventional model of agriculture. So the paradigm shift in agriculture would be a huge game changer. And we all could be key participants in that. And to m- bring it about, we probably need to rely more on uh, more direct and more dialog- dialogic forms of democracy. And that's, I think, that's how we work in the West, right? What do we do in the West? We do stuff bottom up, right? That's what we have been always be doing. and if you know, the the last three years have taught us anything, then it's wherever the the new, the good is coming from, it won't be from the White House. It won't come from the top. We have to bring it about ourselves. And I think that's really the the narrative that, that I try to strengthen there and show interesting examples. And then the last piece, then you know when you when you look at this movement that is building up in many places in the world and where people will kind of uh, take control kind of, of their own destiny in, in, in many different forms how can we make sure that the movement that's being building is not reverting in order to make something dot 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 great again but is really leaning into the emerging future right well the leverage point for that is transformation literacy It's a vertical transformation literacy. It's the capacity to open your mind, open your heart, open the will. So it's the capacity to shift your own consciousness from a silo more to a systems view, or from an ego to an eco perspective. And to make that available at scale, I believe, uh, requires a new school for transformation, kind of a a new kind of – and that's, of course, something we – that is quite doable today with the use of technologies. And that's basically what the Presenting Institute, the U-Lab, that we, which is an outgrow
0: here of MIT. Otto, can you just say a little bit? I mean, it's such an amazing experiment, the U-Lab project. I think you had 45,000 people around the globe. These are the kind of dialogical collections and bringing it down to the people, exactly what we need. And maybe you can just tell people how they can find out more on your site also on the presencing site. Yeah, yeah. So yeah,
1: we have had like, uh, we started that five years ago, we have had 150,000 registered users since, and we have developed that now into uh, an annual cycle of transformation. So all of that is free of charge. It's like we consider that part of the global commons, where during one part of the year, the fall term, you can more focus on the strengthening the personal foundation for systems change. Kind of your uh, that we talked about in this session. And where in the other part, which is like the spring term, you focus on bringing your intention into reality by forming prototype teams and moving from prototype idea to impact. Mm-hmm. So if you want to find more out about that and also enroll kind of, so it's uh, the 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 best way to do it is uh, presencing.org. Presencing with a T in the center, right? From presence and uh, uh, presencing.org. And that's when you go to the labs. Um, so uh, that's the first level menu item. You will see that. You will see all the relevant links. You can also go to... Uh, uh, edX, so edX.org, so which is an outgrow of MITx, so ed, uh, edX.org, and then search for ULAB. Uh, so that will bring you to a, a similar place. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, thank you so much for uh, for the conversation. <laughs> I hope we
0: can- So much more. I just uh, have to say how grateful I am to bring awareness to this awareness-based social technology and the shifting the focus to the expanding interiority, both of ourselves and our, our society. Uh, it's just um, so much more we could talk about and I'm just so grateful that you uh, and honored that you took the time to be with us today, Otto. Thank you so much for your work and for being here on Conversations.
1: Thank you, Michael, for having me on, and um, so hopefully this has been useful, and I look forward to our next connection. So do I.
0: Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.